investigation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, when we think of the, of the, uh, the, uh, the book of Leviticus, and perhaps you have read this over the years, um, we usually uh, we try to uh, you know, make this pact with ourselves, we covenant with ourselves, we're going to read through the Bible in a year this year, right? And we get through Genesis, we get through most of Exodus, and then we hit Leviticus. And what happens? We, it slows down like molasses kind of for us because uh, we, we find all these laws, all these rules and regulations, right? All these ceremonial laws about clean and unclean foods and about mildew and, and bodily discharges and about feasts and sacrifices and rules about who and what and when offerings were to be made, uh, given an almost painful, excruciating detail, Right? And that's when we think of the word Leviticus or the book of Leviticus, that's often what pops into our minds. But there's another way that we ought to view, the right way to view the book of Leviticus, and that is as the book in which God declares His holiness and how His people are to live before Him as holy. It teaches us really about, it brings to the forefront um, and, and it celebrates and commemorates the holiness of God. It's not just a book of regulations contained in this book, but it, it may be rightly ex, um, uh, described as Israel's How to Live as God's Holy People book. We, we, we should think of Leviticus like that. Picking up from the book of Leviticus, or from Exodus, Leviticus instructs the people of God, the nation of Israel, his covenant people, as to how they were to live, how they were to carry themselves as children of the living God, how they were to worship Him. On every page, with every law, God shows Himself to be a holy God. He reminds them, it's a reminder that they are a holy people and they are to live and to worship as holy in His sight. Now, boys and girls, we keep saying that word holy. What does that mean exactly? Well, there's two meanings. Uh, when we um, read the Bible and we come across the word holy, first of all, uh, we could think of the word holy as meaning that God is above and separated from all the things that He has created. Right? We, of course, we're made in God's image, but we're not gods. Right? Only God is God. God is not the thunder and the lightning. He is not the sky and the sun. These are things that He made. He is not the mountains and the trees. He made all these things. He is creator and king. And no one, but no one and nothing is like Him. He's separate and other, right? So that's the first uh, meaning when we think of the word holy. But when we speak of God being holy... And, and this is the one we'll be focusing on this morning. When we speak of the God being holy, we mean that He is also separated from sin. God is not like us, right? He cannot be tempted to sin, nor does He tempt anyone. He is perfectly pure and clean in thought, word, and deed. In fact, He cannot sin. There is no wickedness in Him. Uh, in fact, He hates, He abhors sin. And this is not something that he learned. You know, sometimes as we go along in life, we learn not to do this or that this is bad, this is good. That's not what happened with God. God is just pure sinless. He's holy. He is in, the very, um, in his very being, in the character of his being, he is holy. And everything he does is free from 
um, that, from anything that, uh, that say, makes us unholy. And so there's no pride and selfishness and vengeance and envy in God, all the things that make us sinful. God is good and pure and free from all imperfections. But then as soon as we say that, we, we have to ask this question, if God is these things, if God is holy and pure, if God is perfect, then how could imperfect, sinful people like you and me hope to have a relationship with a holy God? Well, in the case of Israel, he gave them sacrifices. And he gave them very strict ways by which they could approach him and how they were to live before him. And how they could be continually cleansed from their sins. And through these means, they would be growing in holiness as well. They were being trained in holiness so that they could live as God's special people. The Old Testament calls them a kingdom of priests. And since man by nature cannot make his heart and his mind holy, God gave them ways to be holy. And as they practiced these things, they were growing in holiness. And that is, where, uh, that is what the book of Le Leviticus is about. How God's people Israel could be in a relationship with him by practicing and maintaining holiness. That is purity from sin. And that, as we see this morning, had to begin at the very top with the priests. The priests had the responsibility to teach the people of God holiness by their work and by their very lives. And that's why we find this chilling account recorded for us in the Bible. God is holy, and those who come near to Him must regard Him as holy. And He demonstrates this. And he does this uh, a, a number of times in the Bible, but he does it this morning specifically as he brings swift justice upon the sons of Aaron. And congregation, as we listen to these words, what we want to be reminded of is that this is the same God that you and I worship still today. And that we are to approach him with the understanding that he is not like us. He is intolerant of sin. He makes no compromises with sin. He is sinless and pure, and he's certainly not to be trifled with or taken lightly. And this passage teaches us about how we are to approach God in worship. As he has commanded, and we'll see what that means later on, as he has commanded and not as we think or as we feel. And we see here in this passage then, and we could, we could summarize it here with this, uh, with, this, uh, with this theme. We see here God's deadly displeasure with renegade worship. God's deadly displeasure with renegade worship. A renegade, boys and girls, is someone who betrays or deserts their assigned duty. They decide to go off on their own and do their own thing. Do as they think, what feels good to them. That's a renegade. But we read then the account of the death of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. Aaron, of course, was the brother of Moses, and he was the first high priest of the nation of Israel when God established them. And what makes the destruction, the death of Nadab and Abihu especially sad is that when you read the whole story, they started out really well. 
We first hear of them in Exodus chapter 6, verse 23, of their birth to Aaron, the brother of Moses, and his wife, Elisheba. And then we hear of them in Exodus 24, where they are given the privilege of accompanying Moses and Aaron and 70 elders up Mount Sinai. And we read in Exodus 24 there, verses 9 to 11, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, here they are, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and they ate and drank. And so Nadab and Abihu started off especially blessed. They saw with Uh, the other 70, uh, a a visible representation of God Himself. And they ate and they drank in His presence and they had intimate fellowship with Him. In Leviticus 8, we even have recorded their elaborate, drawn-out preparation and consecration for the office of priest. In chapter 9, they take part in the first worship service in their official capacity as priests in Israel. That's in chapter 9. And now in chapter 10, we read of them dying, perishing in an instant. And Numbers 3, verse 4, tells us as well that they not only died because of their sin, but that they died childless. And we have to understand that the worst nightmare for an Israelite was to die without children or to have no children, no one to carry on your name when you left this life. It meant that your inheritance in the promised land was gone. It was vanished with you. And so we can learn from this how seriously God takes this kind of renegade worship Uh, performed here by Nadab and Abihu. He doesn't fool around with these kinds of things. When he punishes, he punishes. When he makes a point, he makes a point. Well, we have to ask, well, what did Nadab and Abihu do to bring such swift and horrific end to their lives? Well, I have to tell you that this, this has been the subject of much debate among scholars. And to be honest with you, if you read A hundred commentaries, you might get a hundred different opinions on this, but again, they're all opinions. I don't know if we we can come to a final conclusion. Um, I'm going to propose one one reason I think that uh, their lives were taken, but uh, every commentator, every scholar that you meet, he'll say uh, something along the lines of, um, Absolutely, to be sure, there is no doubt, this is why they died, and then he'll, they'll give their interpretation. I'm not willing to burn at the stake for mine, but uh, I think um, it, it, it's, uh, it's reasonable, right? So uh, what we read is Aaron and, and uh, or Nadab and Abihu, they take their censer, and they put fire in it, and they offer it before the Lord. Now, incense, oh, well, let me say a censer, boys and girls, is a small shovel with a long handle, and it was made of bronze, and uh, they, they take this, um, these little shovels um, and they put uh, incense in it. And, and incense was a very highly fragrant mixture that was used. Well, we know what incense is. It creates a sweet-smelling uh, smoke when it is burned. Uh, but this particular incense, we read about it in Exodus 30, 
uh, God had commanded uh, this to be made. It was a compound made out of several sweet spices, including frankincense, and uh, he commanded it according to the art of a perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. And so this particular incense was not for human use. It was only to be used in the sanctuary of God and exclusively for his honor. And so some scholars would say, you'll read, well, maybe they use some other kind of incense. We don't know for sure, right? Um, the, what the scriptures record, uh, Nadab and, and Abihu is doing as offering unauthorized fire before the Lord. Offering unauthorized fire before the Lord. What exactly is meant by unauthorized fire, as I said, is not an easy thing to determine, if we are being completely honest. Literally, the Hebrew word translated unauthorized means strange. Strange in the sense that uh, uh, it, it's um, uh, unknown, unrelated, unacquainted with. And so uh, in Deuteronomy 25, verse 5, for instance, uh, it's commanded that when a, when a man dies... His widow is not to be married to a stranger. That is some, someone outside of the family, right? Uh, or even Job uses the same word in chapter 19, verse 13, to describe his condition. He says his friends had become strangers to him. And so it has the sense of unknown, unrelated, unacquainted with. And so we have to ask, well, what made Nadab and Abihu's offering strange then? And again, it doesn't seem like anyone can say with absolute surety. The closest we can come to something of a, of a parallel passage is in Exodus 30. And the context there is that of God's instructions to Israel through Moses to build an altar, to burn incense on it, uh, made of acacia wood. And Aaron, the high priest, he's instructed at this time, he was to burn incense on it continually. And we hear in, in uh, Exodus 30, verse 9, that he was not to offer unauthorized incense on it. That's the closest we can come. Exodus 30, especially verse 9, Aaron was not to offer unauthorized incense on it. Uh, but listen as well, and, and perhaps this gives us a little bit of a clue uh, as to what may have been the, uh, the cause. This is Leviticus 16, uh, verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. All right? And so he says to them, Tell, him, tell Aaron not to just come at any old time, right? Uh, only at the appointed times. And so that's why I think that a credible conclusion, and like I said, I'm not willing to burn at the stake for this, but I think a credible conclusion was that Nadab and Abihu entered into the presence of God somewhat uh, presumptuously, right? At a time when he had not commanded them to do so. Uh, perhaps they got caught up in the excitement and they did what they were not supposed to do at an inappropriate time. And thinking that this was, would have been pleasing to God, right? Because, mind you, the language doesn't seem to indicate that they intentionally set out to disobey God, right? They were not giggling like little uh, school children, uh, knowing that they were going to do something mischievous, right? Uh, they, it does seem that they, they acted impulsively 
without giving thought to their actions, but it doesn't seem that they plan to do something uh, rebelliously or sinfully, right? It, it would seem that they, what, they would, what they were doing, they thought they were doing a good thing, right? But they, would, um, but they were not following the strict guidelines that God had set before them. At the end of verse 1 of our passage tells us that they offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them. And that's, a, that's the more important phrase, right? Which He had not commanded them. And reminds us still today that the God of the Bible is not as tolerant as people often think He is. And here, he makes an example, and, and at several times, points in, 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 uh, in history, in the, uh, recorded in the scriptures, he makes that point again and again. He shows that he's not as tolerant as people often thinks, think. Uh, here he makes an example of the priests. John Calvin says uh, that if God had allowed them to get away with this small thing, they would. And we can understand that. That's human nature, right? If God had allowed them to get away with this small thing... They would have afterwards carelessly neglected the whole law. Okay? And so God makes the point very swiftly and uh, in, in a way that, that left no doubt that he was not pleased. And, and it's a reminder, isn't it? First and foremost to the leaders of God's church that they have to be especially vigilant. Right? We have the, the leaders of the church. Uh, together with the pastor, uh, we have to maintain order in the church. Uh, we have to guard the worship, especially the word being preached, that the holiness of God is never disrespected or disregarded. And, and, and the elders of the church, the, the leaders, have to be uh, examples of godliness as well to the flock of Christ. Because why? We will be held accountable. Right? Isn't that what James says in chapter 3 of his letter, James 3, verse 1? It says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Right? And the idea here is that if you are a leader in the church, this assumes that you are knowledgeable of the truths of the faith and that you are able and willing to teach. Well, what do teachers do? They point people in the right way. They correct and they guide. And so, obviously, they will be judged more harshly because they know better, or at least they should know better. And so, for the leaders of the church to make light of worship and godliness, for the leaders of the church to turn a blind eye to sin or fail to correct God's flock when they are erring in life and doctrine, that's sin for us as leaders of the church. And there are consequences. James says that we will be judged more harshly. But let's, let's quickly say that this is not just an elder or deacon problem. Every Christian has the responsibility to guard ourselves against living careless lives and worshiping God irreverently. Think of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, where he chastises them for separating themselves into different groups. He says, I, I, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, right? When they should have been saying, the church have been should have been united, and they should have all been confessing, we all belong to Christ, right? 
Paul chastises them for being prideful. Immorality was being tolerated. Lawsuits were being waged against each other. And the Lord's Supper was a joke to the point where God was actually, uh, some of them were sick and dying because of it. The Lord was chastening them for their behavior. And so we all need to be mindful of our calling as members of God's church to live holy and self-controlled lives. God is not to be trifled with. And so we read in verse 2, the fire went out from the Lord and consumed them. This doesn't mean that they were burned to ashes because we're told in verse 5 that their cousins came and carried them out by their coats out of the camp. It tells us that they died on the spot. God took their lives in an instant. Now, some people might read this. Some people who see themselves as critics of the Bible and they'll say, wow, that sounds pretty harsh. Isn't God a little bit too severe, especially that God of the Old Testament? Doesn't seem here like the punishment fits the crime. But again, if we think about what a, what, what a holy thing the worship of God is, we can only put our hands over our mouths. One writer uses a great illustration, I think, uh, the illustration of electricity. He compares what happens uh, to here to Nadab and Abihu as uh, uh, compared to if we mess with or fool around with electricity. He says electricity is good. We all would agree that. It provides light. It provides heat. It cooks our food. It washes our clothes. We love electricity. At the same time, we have to respect it because we know, we learn that the hard way the first time we, we touch a live wire, we know that the wrong kind of contact with electricity can result in serious injury or even death. Well, in the same way, though in a much greater way, God, of course, is the giver of all things. His very presence provides life. He sustains us by His power. But if we approach Him wrong, if we come to Him carelessly, we have to understand that we put ourselves in mortal danger. The priests, Nadab and Abihu, approached God in ways that He had not commanded. And they paid for it with their lives. And again, some might say, but, but still, you know, couldn't a warning have sufficed? Did God really have to kill them on the spot like that? But let us remember that this was a time of new beginning for Israel. They were being established as God's holy people. And all had to understand that God, the God who had brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, was to be approached with fear and awe. There was no room for mistakes or presumption. We see the same thing happening later on in Scripture, don't we? At, uh, in 2 Samuel 6, where Uzzah is struck down dead for simply reaching out his hand, touching the ark, trying to steady it, right? Or, or we read in uh, Acts 5, of, at the establishment of the New Testament church, when Ananias and Sapphira, they die instantly for lying to the Holy Spirit. And, and this, by the way, has everything to do with why we need Jesus. And we'll talk about that in a second. But for now, let's listen again to verse 3. 
Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So we can, we can picture the scene, right? Aaron, loving father, standing there at this point, most likely with his mouth open, horrified at what he just saw. One minute, he's so full of joy, He's just lifted up in the previous verses. He's, he's lifted up his hands and he blessed Israel after offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering. And the glory of God, we read in chapter 9, verse 23, the glory of God appeared to all the people. And then in chapter 9, verse 24, we read, And the fire and fire came out before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their face. What a wonderful moment. God had accepted their offering. All was well. Fire had come out and consumed the offering. And the next minute, we read that Aaron's sons are lying dead. Because fire came out again. From the Lord, this time to destroy. And we can imagine Aaron, loving father at this time, what, what was he to think? But Moses quickly interprets the situation. And we have to believe that Moses and Aaron understood what Nadab and Abihu had done more perfectly than we do. Okay, we, uh, as I said, there are many interpretations as to what they did. Uh, some of it is speculation, some of it is, uh, you know, assumption. But we have to believe that Moses and Aaron understood very clearly what had happened here. But we still have to see that this must have been a blow. We can easily see, can't we? Aaron, at this point, tearing off his high priestly robes and saying, Look, if this is the way God deals with people, I don't want anything to do with him. Right? This God is too vicious. But Moses reminds him, this is what the Lord warned us about. He is holy, and those who come near to him must also be holy. He is glorious, and those who serve him must be seeking to promote his glory. What has happened here is the consequence of disregarding God's warning. God is not, Moses is, is explaining to Aaron here, God is not reacting impulsively here, or he's not overreacting. This is what we ought to expect. This is to be expected of a holy God. And so it, it really shouldn't come as that much of a shock or surprise. And when Moses explains it like that, we read that Aaron held his peace. In other words, he was silent. He didn't retaliate. He didn't argue the point. He submitted to God's will. He accepted that God's way is right. Uh, of course, that doesn't mean that he stopped grieving. Of course, it broke his heart that he lost his, his two sons. Later on in verse 19, we read that neither he nor his other sons could eat of the sin offering. And, and we say, of course, they couldn't. How could they with their hearts so full with grief and sadness? They couldn't do it with, with joy and thanksgiving the way they were supposed to. And so Aaron was grieving, no doubt, as any parent would. But he stayed silent. He held his peace. He did not speak against the Lord. He accepted the word of Moses. And congregation, it's a reminder to us all 
that God, the God that we serve, the God who uh, has taken us to be His own, is holy. And His holiness, especially as we recognize His holiness in worship, is never to be reimagined, reconfigured, or in any way reinvented so that it puts the focus back on us and away from reverence for Him. To Him belong all praise and glory, and especially in the worship service. And it reminds us this morning that were it not for God's grace to us in Christ Jesus, none of us would have any hope. Because which of us could say this morning honestly that we could ever hope to offer pure and undefiled worship to God? And so we needed one who could offer that worship for us. One who could never be guilty of of offering strange fire that God had not commanded because His will was perfectly conformed to the will of His Father and He Himself was pure. The prophet Malachi spoke of a day when in every place incense shall be offered to God's name and His name shall be great among the nations. When we read that in the context of the whole Bible, we know that obviously this was looking forward to the perfect work of Jesus Christ, who, and Paul puts it really well, and he connects all of this for us in Ephesians 5 verse 2, and he says that Christ gave himself for us, listen to this, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma, okay? And so Christ has fulfilled what none of the Old Testament, what, what the Old Testament sacrifice could only prefigure, foreshadow, point to. We might say it this way, Leviticus 10 anticipates, it looks forward to, it cries out for the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. When God, this holy God, would accept our worship in mercy and grace through Christ. Because apart from Jesus, our worship, let's be honest, our worship would be mere profanity in the sight of a holy God. And let it cause us to give our heads a shake this morning and to wake us up if we find ourselves being tempted to slide into apathy, to kind of routine worship, going through the motions, right? Let us be reminded that when we come together as God's people, He is holy. He's still holy. He always has been holy. He will always be holy, right? And let us be warned as a congregation to slam the brakes when we even begin to think, if even the, the beginning of a thought begins to form in our minds, hey, you know what? I think it might be cool to do this in worship. Hit the brakes real hard. Make a U-turn. If we begin to think and we begin our, our sentences, like we, we're having a discussion about worship, and we say, I think people might enjoy this, right? These are things we have to run far from. I mean, t- today, of course, in many circles, uh, we're, we're told to, that we need, that the church needs to keep up with the times, right? We need to change things to keep up with the culture. They say, well, people's thoughts have changed uh, on this subject or that subject, right? People can't go through, uh, can't sit through a, ser- a long service with a boring sermon anymore. We need to entertain them, right? We need to, to make, uh, make it so that people come to church with, 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 with joy and they're glad to come, right? 
So we hear of churches blatantly disobeying the Bible. Some of them um, elect and they call women to the offices of the church. Some of them allow practicing homosexuals to lead services or to worship as full members without a word of correction or a call to repentance. Why? Because they say the times have changed, the culture has changed, the thinking of man has changed. We even have churches where a blind eye is turned to the glaring sins of members and the unrepentant are allowed to partake of the Lord's Supper and the elders do nothing. Baptism is administered to those who shouldn't have it and denied to those who should. And in so many circles today, it's, it's sad to say, and it's gut-wrenching to view, but worship has become more of a performance than reverence. And so we see, don't we, that unauthorized fire is still being offered to the Lord. And there will be a reckoning. But congregation, as much as it is possible, let us strive to live and to worship in obedience to God's word and not what we feel and what we think. Let us come to him as he has commanded, that is, through Jesus Christ, as he says in John 14, verse 6. Let us worship him in spirit and in truth, as he says in John 4, that is, by his spirit, not our own wills, and in accordance with his word. Let us be reminded that the true and living God is a holy God and He's not to be trifled with. Let's uh, end with these words from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 to 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, our God is a consuming fire. Amen.